Good evening, good morning, wherever you are. My name is Thomas Steininger. I welcome you to re-evolve our webcast for consciousness and culture. I'm very happy to have with me uh, this time Connie Zweig. Connie, welcome to Radio Evolve. Thank you for having me. Connie, you have been a pioneer in the fields of shadowworks and a mindfulness practice. You are the founder of the Center of Shadowworks and Spiritual Counseling, and you are author of several books, Meeting the Shadow, Romancing with the Shadow, Meeting the Shadow of Spirituality, and you have a new book, which is The Inner Work of Age. And there's something uh, about age that uh, seems to be in the air right now. There is a lot of conversation about how should I say it, conscious aging and also taking serious uh, the last part of our lives. And you as a psychologist and as a, a spiritual practitioner seem to have your own uh, kind of understanding how aging can be a conscious practice. Is that fair to say? Very beautifully said. Can you, can you tell us how did, you, how did it start that you wanted to write uh, about aging as a conscious practice? And what, um, what was opening up when you were looking into this topic? And how did you get there? Okay. So um, as I began to enter my late 60s, I noticed that I started to feel disoriented. And as I imagined retiring from my clinical practice, um, I didn't have any sense of direction or any, I didn't hear a call. Um, as you said, I've been meditating for more than 50 years, um, not so much in the mindfulness tradition, but in the Vedanta tradition. And um, I've been doing depth psychological work for almost as long. So I was surprised that I felt disoriented. And I began to read in the area of conscious aging or positive aging. And I noticed that there was no literature that included the unconscious or the shadow and how it's influencing our process of aging. And then I found um, Saging International, which is an organization that offers one-year training to become a sage or elder. So I entered that training, and I really experienced it as an initiation. It was really beautiful. But again, it didn't include the unconscious process. So I realized that I needed to extend my work on the shadow or the personal unconscious into midlife and beyond, into our 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, and really look at how we meet the shadows of age. And that's what brought me to write the book. I think you, you, you named the word that I would like to ask you. Uh, you said this, shadows of age. Yes. Uh, uh, that, that's an unusual formulation. What, the, what do you mean, the shadow of age? I mean, everyone, I think, if you spend a little thought about aging, uh, it becomes aware, of course, this is not a difficult, uh, this, is, this is a difficult question because uh, it's about ending. There's, there's something, our identity, where we want to go with life, there, there's something where we uh, go to what's, what is an ending. And also there's a different life phase. We may have accomplished something. We, we may have become someone 
someone we are happy with or not happy with. And at the same time, somehow the, the perspective of life is changing because all of, all of a sudden there's so, not so much ahead of us anymore and there's a lot behind us and life is kind of, the directions of life are changing. But you are especially talking about the shadow of age. Uh, yes. How can we understand that? So I see this stage of life, which by the way is unprecedented in human history, there's never been so much longevity, so many years after retirement until the end of life before. So it's a new stage of life. And I see it as a rite of passage. So as you were describing, the first step is letting go. We need to learn how to let go of our roles and our worn out identities and step into the unknown. Sometimes it's called liminal space and then emerge renewed into this new stage of life as an elder. Mm -hmm. And when I give people that framework, they start to feel less disoriented. They start to say to me, well, I've done that before. You know, I've done a rite of passage before and gone through these stages, so I can do it again. There is, with this particular one, as you pointed out, the fear of the end the fear of death. And for me, it creates an urgency in people, even if it's unconscious, even if they're not thinking or talking about mortality, it's in there. And it creates a kind of urgency around this rite of passage. But let me step back to your question about shadows of age, because that's really important. So if the culture we live in says that young, productive, independent, and strong are valuable and worthy of respect, but old, independent, and unproductive, and weak are not, are not okay, are not valuable, are not respectable, are not worthy of respect, then what happens as we move into some of those traits or qualities in later life? Mm -hmm. We carry with us a certain burden of lack of self-acceptance, even shame. And so if we don't make conscious our attitudes and beliefs about age, if we don't shed light on them in the shadow, and bring them into awareness, then we're carrying with us all of that negative baggage, all of those fears and dreads about aging. And there's amazing research now out of Yale University that this internalized ageism is having an impact on our physical health, for example, our cardiac health, on our brain health, our memory, on our mental health with depression and will to live, and even on our longevity. So this internalized ageism, and I give it the name, the inner ageist, that's the shadow character that carries this internalized ageism. If we don't bring that into awareness or into consciousness, 
it's having all this unknown impact on us. And as a result, many, many of the people I interviewed for the book were unhappy with where they're at and who they are now, with their image, with their appearance, Mm -hmm. with their loss of some independence in some way, with their um, lack of productivity, if they're feeling, you know, um, disconnected from purpose. So these discoveries were really startling to me. And um, I developed a lot of practices or tools for helping people to work through the shadows of age. You mentioned uh, something that um, seems to be very significant and it's worth contemplating it uh, that uh, basically because we are expanding our lifespan as humanity and we are also healthier when we get older, uh, there is a new form of aging that we we as a species, as humanity, have not experienced before because aging was more really an ending of something uh, and not that after retirement, there is a new whatever. Yes. Uh, where at least we are healthy enough uh, to find out what this is. This is a new constellation. But there is also an irony as I see it with it. I'm, I'm, I'm interested how you see it because this hits a generation that maybe like no other generation has internalized a culture of youth. So the, the, the boomer generation, which is the generation aging right now, are basically grew up with uh, everything, all the cliches that we know from the genes to rock and roll. It, it's, it's an eternal youth culture. And you also mentioned that in our time, uh, there's next to the culture of youth, also a culture of productivity. And of course, uh, getting older, uh, one thing, uh, what you experience, you are less productive. Previous generations uh, seem to have a different relationship to age. You also brought this interesting uh, similarity that I was not aware of in English language between age and sage. So older cultures, traditional cultures had a relationship to sage. We don't really have that anymore. Also because um, we are in such a fast time where basically so much information is coming from technology that old means basically not being in that sense more knowledgeable because uh, sometimes the new the, the newer generation has more knowledge about what's going on right now than the older. So this is a very ironic situation. Is part of the shadow that you are experiencing that we are basically a culture that is very focused on youth, on productivity, on development, and all of a sudden uh, we are asked to become something different in our last time that has nothing to do, if I may say so, with all of these values that I was just describing. You know, that's beautifully put. No one else has really mentioned that to me. But I want to clarify something, Thomas. We are not, baby boomers, we are not the only generation aging. Every person on the planet is aging from the Mm -hmm. moment we're born. So age doesn't just refer to people in their 70s and 80s. Every every person is aging all the time. And in fact, it's a profound 
thing that we all have in common. So the baby boom generation, you know, which is my tribe, which I love so much, um, does have this ageless, youthful um, ideal. We've always had that. Mm-hmm. And the, our music has had that. And our careers, our, the orientation to our careers have had that, our contributions, um, our values have had that. And so what's happening now as baby boomers enter this new stage of life, and as you said, a lot of these traits um, start to diminish. What happens is what I call a late life identity crisis except that in midlife, when we have an identity crisis, we can pick up a new role, a new career, a new spouse and get revitalized. We can't do that now. A new role is not sufficient for this stage of life. And all of the perennial spiritual traditions teach us that this stage of life has a different purpose. It's about spirituality. It's about what I call shifting from role to soul. So not picking up yet another role to rebuild our persona or our mask, but actually allowing those to fall away and picking up instead a spiritual practice that enables us to deepen into an essential identity. And I don't care what we call it, if we call it soul or spirit, or higher self, or God within, doesn't matter to me. But beginning to experience and embody that as we move into this stage of life. And that's about becoming an elder. An elder is a stage, not an age. It's a stage of awareness about who we really are, Mm -hmm. about our authenticity and our authority as after long life experience Mm -hmm. and the recognition that it's a privilege to grow old. You know, not everyone has that privilege. So baby boomers are, you know, there's a lot of incredible productivity in our generation now. People are picking up encore careers, building businesses, volunteering, mentoring, grandparenting. But if those are only new roles, they're missing out on this hidden spiritual purpose mm-hmm. of this stage of life. May I ask you about that? You made this distinction between role and soul. And um, I, I understand because, because of the end becoming visible, uh, to pick up a new role doesn't make so much sense anymore. Because obviously the role does end with the end. So uh, it becomes a little kind of a question mark. Uh, uh, why, what, what does it mean to build a role right now when I'm kind of in the end of all roles? Um, and you said that it is a privilege, uh, this new stage, uh, to find out who, uh, who we are. In what context are you talking, finding out who we are? Because of course, You could say finding out who we are, it's also finding out my role in life. But it seems uh, that you are saying uh, part of what the challenge and what the privilege is about is that this is not the case anymore. 
You know, I love the title of your broadcast in your magazine, Evolve. So my book is about evolving. It's about the evolution of the soul through developing consciousness. Mm -hmm. And for some people, that's an emotional development. They need to use this stage of life, let's say, to repair relationships, to give and receive forgiveness so that they don't die with regret. Mm -hmm. Other people want to continue learning and their intellectual development is their focus. Other people want to develop spiritually. And I call that evolution of soul. And so what happens then is we need a spiritual practice. And it doesn't matter whether it's from the Jewish tradition or the Christian or the Hindu or the Buddhist or the Muslim tradition, doesn't matter. If it's a practice that allows you to quiet your mind and center yourself and watch your thoughts, then there is a possibility that you can deepen your identity from doing to being. Mm -hmm. from achievement or self-image to something deeper and maybe more long-lasting. So I borrowed the term role to soul from the spiritual teacher Ramdas. He coined that term. Because for me, it just says so clearly this shift that I'm trying to describe as the hidden meaning and the hidden purpose of this stage of life. It's evolution. That's the purpose. You know, Carl Jung, one of my teachers, said, um, the afternoon of life has a different meaning and purpose from the morning of life. But if we continue to strive for the purpose of the morning, then there is damage to our soul. So it's time now to learn how to attend to the soul, how to attune to it to the soul's longings, to the soul's symbolic messages, and evolve, extend our identity from doing to being. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't mean stopping doing, that's not what I mean. I mean, cultivating a state of mind in which we do differently. Which of course opens the question when you say uh, to evolve, and we're talking about evolve in the, in the context of ending. Uh, what does evolve mean? I mean, if you have a metaphysical context and you, you, you believe in afterlife or you believe in reincarnation, uh, uh, th that all makes sense. But, that's, uh, but uh, that's related to a particular uh, metaphysical context that you're holding. But uh, let's, uh, for, for all others, uh, where at least... Uh, maybe we are not so sure that the end is more than an end. Uh, what does evolving uh, mean when you're basically going to uh, the void? Uh, something at least that you don't know, or you just know that something ends, but uh, um, if there's something beginning, uh, if we leave that open, uh, what does evolve mean in that context? Well, I say in the book that my teaching is not about your beliefs. 
It's independent of belief. So, and I'm not, and I'm not telling people what to believe. I'm not telling people to believe in reincarnation or in materialism or in nihilism or in, even in, in transcendence. What I'm telling people is that um, if you want to do inner work in this stage of life, you're doing it in the context of impending death. And that can create an alchemical shift. That awareness can create an urgency, an urgency to harvest all the wisdom of your long life, mm -hmm. an urgency to clean up your relationships, an urgency to clarify what you believe and what you value. And even if it's only to be able to die in peace without regret, then that in itself can be an intention. Mm -hmm. For me, I believe that my conniness will end. You know, we say this too shall pass. My conniness shall pass. And I live with that awareness kind of breath by breath. Mm -hmm. I live with it in my meditation as I exhale and let go of my breath. And so that has become a practice for me in this stage of life. I have other beliefs. You're calling mm -hmm. metaphysical. I have other beliefs. But as you said, other people don't share those beliefs. And I'm not imposing them on anyone. What I'm suggesting is that... <clears throat> consciousness can continue to evolve or the soul can continue to evolve in this stage of life. It's not over just because we turn 70. We may have 20 more years with the new longevity to continue our growth. There's something that you mentioned about uh, uh, things that I have to make right in my life, things that uh, uh, need fulfillment uh, in, in life, which reminds me of something that the German philosopher Martin Heidegger very much stressed. Basically, one of his main thoughts was that we only become really human in uh, being aware of our ending. That's basically what, uh, and in being aware of our mortality. And part, at least the way I understand it, what he meant is Uh, if we would not be aware of our ending, or if we, if we are not aware of our ending, uh, there is no need for fulfillment. Because if something continues in eternity, uh, uh, the word fulfillment doesn't really make sense. But if I'm aware that something ends, and doesn't necessarily have to be the life, it can be uh, a certain situation. Uh, uh, the meaning of this conversation comes to its fulfillment Uh, only because this conversation happens in a certain time with a certain ending. And, and only in that, the, the meaning of this conversation can come to itself. So if I hear you right, part of what the aging process is about, that we can't avoid as easily anymore, that uh, our human existence is about fulfillment, meaning, or uh, something that... Um, becomes more visible when we become aware of the wholeness of it and the wholeness of it includes the ending of it. Yes, that's beautifully said. 
And if we continue to deny death and identify with youth, then we're not living the full truth of who we are and especially who we are now. It's the same, you know, with our beloveds. They will die. And it's very difficult to live with that truth and to love what is mortal. And at the same time, it makes it so precious. It makes it more precious than if I knew my husband and I would be together forever. So this awareness, without looking at mortality, we can't really become an elder. If we remain in denial, we can't really reap the wisdom Mm -hmm. of this stage of life. But isn't it something ironic about it? I come to, back to a point that we touched already before, that um, we, our, our generation, uh, that is so much invested in the culture of youth, where the value of wisdom and sages that has been so much in forefront of traditional cultures. I mean, there's there's no traditional culture that doesn't have a high value for uh, what we call wisdom and what we call sage wisdom. All that, uh, to say, uh, say at least in this way, didn't play so much a big role in our times. That now, uh, because we become elder and we, uh, and we become elder in a way that we have to consciously deal with becoming elder, we're not just sick and old, but we, we are fit enough to deal with it. Uh, that somehow this life circumstance forces us to rediscover uh, the values or the meaning of the word sage and the meaning of the word wisdom. Yes. So indigenous cultures around the world actually have rites of passage to become an elder. And so the book is written in that way. If you do the practices, you're actually going through a rite of passage. So, for example, there is a, a, um, an, an exercise in the book called Life Review. Mm-hmm. And if you do the life review of your lived life, and then you do the additional part that I added about the shadow, which is the life review of the unlived life, Mm-hmm. then you begin to uncover what was sacrificed, what was expressed and what was repressed and therefore sacrificed. And what can you do now to reclaim some of the material from the shadow and live it out in these mm-hmm. years we've been given? Mm-hmm. So I interviewed people who were now painting full time and said to me, I never knew I was an artist. I remember thinking about this as a child, but here I am. I'm an artist or a musician. My husband is a bass player in a rock band. So we can begin to reclaim some of that material in these years now and express it in a way that we wouldn't have expressed when we were younger. At the same time, you know, you asked about indigenous elders and and sort of the invisibility of elders in Western industrialized, post-industrial culture. 
I have this experience now with my 10 year old grandson that I could never have imagined. I, I didn't have any model of a positive elder when I was growing up. And so I internalized a lot of the negativity of the culture, of the media, the TV shows and the movies that were patronizing and condescending of older people. But I recognize that with him, I am giving him an experience of an elder who's thriving in her 70s, who's healthy, who's creative. And he's internalized that. He's excited about my new book. So he is internalizing a different image of the elder. And all of us can do that for our grandkids and the future generations will have a different picture and a different feeling and a different belief about what it means to become an elder. So that's a small way we can contribute. I mean, I, I, find, I find it very, very profound also to, to see that uh, by basically being forced to what we forced, are forced to right now, to, to become elder in a more conscious way, we are also creating a new, we, again, we are creating new role model of what it can be uh, to be a conscious elder. And you were describing the rites of passages that, that you're also describing in your book. And, and when you were doing that, uh, you, you made something clear to me that I didn't understand until that point uh, in, that, uh, in, in, in that way. Uh, have a deeper understanding what, what, what the shadow of, 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 of being old or the shadow of an elder really can be. And this is when you said to be aware of my unlived life. And just when you said that, be aware of my unlived life. And I think everyone has that, that something flashes in you where all, all what you could be, and I don't mean that I could be a millionaire, but I, what basically my essence is about, independent of life circumstances, because life circumstances are what they are. Uh, but in the life circumstances that I live into and that I meet and partly I create and partly I am victim to, uh, we all know uh, where there's something where I was true to my essence and where I wasn't. Yes. And that's what they, how I understand you, uh, where the shadow shows up. Yes. Uh, the shadow of my life and uh, where also because I'm, that's part of the, the elder role also, because we, we have a retirement system where, where for the good or the bad, we are free from our roles to a big degree. And all of a sudden, uh, I can ask the question again in a way that maybe as a manager in my 40s, uh, it's very difficult to ask at least. Not it's impossible, but it's very difficult. So what is this life, my life, our life really all about? And where I can see that, just confronting myself with the shadow uh, is an energy source, an energy source to um, I see uh, how I can fulfill what I could be. Okay? Yes. So that I can see the power that you're describing in, in discovering the shadow 
is saying, okay, I'm in my 60s, I'm in my 70s right now. This is what I lived. This is what I could have lived. And this is what I can make out of this recognition. And uh, this is something, it's not just ending, it's, it's, it's bringing things to fulfillment. That's, it. That's beautifully said. That's right. It's bringing them to fruition. Because we've been ripening all these years. We've been ripening and now we can bring them to fruition. And we can enjoy the fulfillment of this stage of life as well as evolve. So there are many aspects to the shadow and, you know, the unlived life is, um, may not be in conscious awareness for people, but it is felt, it's a felt sense. If at that moment I went that way instead of this way, or if I chose this partner instead of that partner, or if I had more kids or less kids, or this career or that career, right? All of these choices that have unfolded in our long lives. And what happened for me when I wrote out the life review on this long piece of paper, and I saw that things that I thought were losses, actually had some gains in them. They led me in a different direction. And things that were betrayals actually woke me up. They were initiations into the shadow. And so I began to reframe certain things and I sat at the end and I felt this profound gratitude for the way that my life had unfolded. And that is a fulfillment. I'm not I'm no longer sort of wrestling with the way things happened in this lifetime. I feel um, mostly gratitude about it all. And we can do the same thing with relationships. And we can do the same thing with our spiritual lives, our creative lives. I have a friend who's written about 25 books but he never wrote the novel that he always wanted to write because he had to pay his bills. And now he's 73 and he just said to me, it's time, I'm gonna write that novel. It stayed with him all these decades. So we can experience what it is to be a fulfilled elder if we really kind of take on this inner work. Mm -hmm. So, just um, also asking for our listeners, um, you, you mentioned that you are describing rites of passages and I'm sure uh, listening to you, like for myself, the question comes up, how, how to do this? How to do this? How to make a conscious step in becoming an elder? Or if somebody asks you the question, uh, what, what, what are you telling people? Uh, what's the step to take here? Well, each chapter in the book is a step. So first of all, waking up to the inner ageist so that you break through the denial of age, that you break through the denial of where you're at now. You break through the denial of what's possible now. And... There's a chapter on retirement and how to do that as a rite of passage 
and I described the rite of passage that I created for myself when I retired from clinical work. Um, it was a profound ritual for me and it involved letting go, you know, letting go, stepping into uncertainty and emerging renewed. Those are the three steps. So I let go of not only my identity as a therapist and the shadow expert, but a lot of um, psychological or emotional identities that went with that for me. And just uncovering what they were and learning how to release them and how to step into the next moment, you know, no longer the therapist. Um, there's a chapter on illness as a spiritual practice because that is a rite of passage, you know, and many people become ill and then identify with I'm the patient or I'm the cancer survivor. And that's another limited identity that we want to be able to release when we recover. Um, and then there are a series of other practices for emotional repair and learning how to release the past so that we can live now in the present moment. Because without that, we're not really moving toward fulfillment. Let me ask about illness. Uh, because some uh, shadow maybe of becoming old is uh, to kind of uh, not uh, really accept the fact, at least that we're becoming more fragile and that our illness becomes a bigger part of our life. And at some point, uh, um, life will find its way of ending and yes. it's by becoming weak, by becoming sick in some way. So there is also a way where how should I say it? Giving into illness seems to be natural, and just basically taking illness as just a sliding road into, uh, excuse my word, vanishing. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. But it seems that this is not what you're recommending to do. Uh, but at same time, there is also the illusion of eternal youth. Uh, which is exactly that, an illusion. Uh, we become, energy level becomes lower, we become easier sick, we become more fragile. What's, what's the wisdom of that? What's the sage relationship to becoming uh, a not so healthy person? So, you know, our physical health in this stage of life determines a lot of what we're able to experience. And so it's really, um, you know, it's a really important factor in how we experience aging. Maybe the most important, physical and mental health. Um, also financial stability. Um, so the chapter is really explores some of the symbolic meaning of illness, um, how to explore our psychology when we're sick. And if we have a caregiver, how to explore that relationship. I go into depth about 
Um, I spent two years with a close friend as her caregiver while she was dying from cancer. And we really deeply explored our shadow issues and how they came up around this situation. And we got to this point where we really were able to drop the roles and see each other as souls on a journey. And it was quite profound. Mm -hmm. um, I have another friend who died, several friends died while I was writing the book. This man was in his 80s and he modeled the most profound way of being ill and dying that I, that I could imagine. And he kept saying to me, I'm just curious about what's next. And my mantra now is allowing. And he just kept allowing and allowing. He didn't fight. He, he was not a fighter against the illness. He was in his 80s. And he kept just allowing. And he had a very peaceful death. And... We had a large community of people supporting both of these friends, actually. So they were not isolated, as some people are. Um, they felt loved. But there was a sense of um, evolution, I want to say, for everyone involved with both of these people. There was, yes, there was grief because they did vanish. Their individuality did vanish. I lost Linda and I lost Riley. It's true. Mm -hmm. But the process was profoundly meaningful for mm -hmm. all of us. There's one sentence that really particularly struck me when you were just describing your relationship to your friends uh, and how you were a caregiver also for them and, and the relationship. You said that you started to see each other is souls. What do you mean? Role to soul. Mm -hmm. So Linda, for a while, was the patient. She felt like a victim. She was angry. And I was the caregiver. I was bringing food, taking care of her body. And we got into these roles. And then she would get triggered by her old mother stuff because I would want her to do something, you know, and she would resist. And we just kept openly talking about the dynamic. And as a result, we became very transparent to each other. And eventually, the personality stuff around the roles fell away. We could see through it. And we could see that she was a soul on a journey that there was more to her than cancer patient. Mm -hmm. And there was more to me than helper or caregiver in those moments. And she was also a meditator and we would meditate together. And so we would sit in the silence together. And at those moments also those roles would fall away. And sometimes the most important thing you can actually do for an ill person is to be silent near them and let them absorb that silence rather than all the doing and the fixing and the repair work. So we found those spaces together, you know, and it was very um, precious. Connie, 
Thank you so much for this conversation. It was very beautiful for me. Thank you, Thomas. Thank you.